Welcome to Calling a City to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Each week you'll hear from us two episodes, the talk and the chat. First up is the talk, and that's the audio version of this week's sermon as preached at Queen's Park Baptist. So this is your opportunity to listen to it again or to listen to it for the first time. And later on in the week, you'll be able to tune in again and download the chat where we gather around and discuss in a bit more detail some of the issues and themes raised in this week's talk. Thank you for tuning in to the talk. We hope you enjoy it. And we look forward to you tuning in again later in the week. Enjoy. I'd love you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to be starting a wonderful and exciting new series in the book of Revelation over these next few weeks and into the autumn. And so we're kicking off this morning in Revelation chapter 1. We're not going, to be re- not going to be able to read every verse or reflect on every verse of Revelation, and we're not going to give you all the answers you've had all of your life to what on earth is going on in this amazing book. But we believe that God will speak to us through the words of this book. We've actually already this morning sung some of those words which have led us into the presence of God. And uh, we'll see in just a moment of the way in which God has given us the words of revelation as, as a means by which we might encounter him, we might stand for him, and we might make his name known in this world. So without further ado, let us uh, get into uh, Revelation chapter 1. And for those of you who are um, watching on the live stream or uh, listening on the podcast, you are very welcome. So we're in John, so we're not in John, we're in Revelation uh, chapter 1, and we're at verse 9. So Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Well, by way of introduction, let me take you way back in time. It is the year 
around AD 95, at the end of the first century. And Christians have now been facing waves of persecution and pressure for something like 30 years at the hands of the Roman Empire. At this point, Peter and Paul have both been executed. And a new emperor has risen to the throne, the Emperor Domitian. And he has launched a reign of terror focused on those who will not bow the knee to his rule. He is one of those totalitarian rulers, but he is also an insecure individual. And so fearful is he of disloyalty that he orders all the people to perform an act of worship which will exalt him as the only Lord and God. They will have to say Caesar is Lord. And of course, many people through the the empire go through the motions. They get on with life. They cast the incense that he requires on a fire. They pledge their allegiance to him through gritted teeth, and they just get on with their lives. But back somewhere in Western Turkey, the churches refuse to submit to this policy. And quite soon, a grizzled old apostle called John finds himself being deported to the prison island of Patmos because he is not prepared to recant his testimony to the power of Jesus at work in his life and in the world and his faithfulness to the word. It's AD 95, there or thereabouts. It's the island of Patmos. And it's the Lord's day. John is very possibly hunkered down in a little stone cave on a hillside. You can still visit it today. I took my wife there on honeymoon, uh, as you do. It's the Lord's day. And there they are in the spirit. John is deep in worship and in prayer. He's seeking the Lord. Verse 10, we read, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And then suddenly, a voice breaks through the silence from heaven to earth with the sound of a trumpet blast. And the voice says, write what you see. Send it to the churches. Tell God's people of what you have seen and heard. And John turned and he saw. We're going to find that these next few weeks, that God will be challenging us about what we see and what we hear and about our perspective on this life and in God's kingdom and authority. John says, I saw. Revelation is all about seeing, looking, beholding. Michael Wilcox writes a commentary about Revelation, and he describes Revelation in this way. He entitles his book, I Saw Heaven Opened. And that's our prayer for today, for every one of us, that as we gather, we would see something of the beauty and glory of heaven cracked open, beaming into our lives on this earth. Because above all else, this book is a revelation 
a witness to an unseen world. That's what John says about it. Right in verse 1, we didn't read this, but you can read it for yourself. He describes what is coming as a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. We're going to be thinking today and in the weeks to come about a revelation of Jesus. Literally, John uses the word apocalypse. An apocalypse simply means the pulling back of a curtain to reveal what lies behind it. An apocalypse is not a world-class disaster. It's a heaven-sent disclosure. It is what God is showing us of his intention, his character, his life. It's as if the lid is being lifted off invisible realities that shape our present world. Revelation asks us, what do you see? I wonder what you do see. I think for all of us, our vision becomes so preoccupied with what is around us, with the empire of the 21st century, whether that's a commercial empire, a political empire, social empires, all these global issues and personal issues cloud our vision. We may not put the name totalitarian or empire upon it, but it often has the same effect upon us. Spent my holiday last year reading a book by the, um, the author Robert Harris, a book called Fatherland, which is a novel um, imagining what might have happened if the Nazis had remained or had won and remained in power over Europe in the 1960s. And if Europe was under a totalitarian, totalitarian state, what would that look like? And he describes a community where only one perspective is allowed and where people blindly accept what they are told without question. A society that's blinded and bound up a community he describes as not being able to see reality or question its authority. That was the kind of environment that John found himself in. It's a kind of environment that we perceive ourselves or we can be in, in a world that is strongly opinionated, in a world where viewpoints and perspectives are hammered at us through social media with all its extremes. Harris suggests that people in that environment react with fear, with a social anxiety. And the kind of anxiety he describes is an anxiety and an anxiousness, rather, that means we foresee bad outcomes. And I just wonder this morning if that is the mentality that has invaded our souls and our hearts, that when we think about the world around about, we immediately default to imagining negative, bad outcomes. We are fearful about the environment we're in. We're fearful about the world around us. We're fearful for our families. We're fearful for ourselves. But Christian discipleship, even in an environment of fear, begins when we see that the Lord is lifted up and is above and beyond Christian discipleship requires us not simply to grit our teeth and to get through, but to see the world from the perspective of the throne room of heaven and to see history from the perspective of the one who has won victory over every power that obstructs 
his plans and purposes. We need to see, and we should see, a different way. How on earth do we do that? Well, on earth we do that by seeking the Lord in worship and prayer, just as John did. Worship and prayer are the windows through which we see that other world. The way in which something of the veil is is torn apart or it thins down such that we are able to perceive true reality. And we need worship and prayer. We need the Word of God and the Spirit of God to project onto our souls a different vision of reality. We are to be faithful. If we are to be fruitful, then we need to see things differently. John found a cave or an island or was found for him. Where is your cave? Where is the location in which you are intentionally seeking to encounter and to worship and to see the God whose purposes are above all things? We need to find our way to a place that will be maybe a different location, a different way for each of us. But we need to find our place to see the Lord. The worship team have the privilege of doing that week by week. It's a tough job to be a worship leader, but it is a privileged position. And we need to encourage these guys to help us. We need to, we're all in the band, folks, uh, but we need to get behind those who help us so that we might get into that place where we are together in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And what comes out of that encounter, we're going to see, is pretty weird. Revelation is technically called apocalyptic uh, literature. It nicks and steals language and images from Jewish literature. And that's the kind of thing you do if you're trying to sneak a letter out of prison, isn't it? You want to put codes and uh, conditions and symbols so that the guards don't know what's actually going on. But more than that, images and cartoons kind of outmaneuver our brains and they lodge deep in our lives. And we're going to find that as we go on, that God's going to access not simply our thinking, but our deep feeling and imagining as we go through. I saw. And then John says, I heard. I don't know if you noticed this, but Revelation is a picture book full of words. There are no line drawings in my Bible, but there is plenty to provoke the imagination. And John goes on to say this revelation of Jesus Christ is a prophecy. So in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. In other words, digging into this, reading this, absorbing this is going to bring fruitfulness to our lives. God's word is not simply informative, it is transformative, isn't it? And the prophetic word is not so much about what is going to happen, but it's what God is doing now. Indeed, in verse 3, where it says the time is near, that word time is the word kairos that many of us will remember as that word that means that God's opportunity, God's timely moment. 
You see, God is speaking a word that's not just going to give us some planning instructions about the end of the world, as if that was particularly useful. God is going to give us a revelation of where the world is now and how we are to live in this world as it stands. As you go through Revelation, it's not going to give you a roadmap to the end of the world. It's not going to give you a chronology of what's going to happen next year and the year after or whatever. It's, it's like opening multiple windows into reality. Sometimes those windows will just beam us down into granular detail. And sometimes they'll open up vast vistas of reality. If you're a movie fan, Revelation is more Christopher Nolan than Steven Spielberg. It's, the timelines are messed about. That's not the significance. The significance is what you see of who God is and what God is doing, not when it might or may not happen. John says, I heard. And in hearing the word, things change. And then John says, thirdly, I spoke. That was his commission, to see and to hear, and then to communicate what he had seen and heard. He relayed the message to the church. And uh, here we're in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. In many ways, the uh, direction and the target of this letter is pretty clear. It is written specifically to seven churches in Western Turkey. So you might find the image is pretty weird, but the target is pretty specific. It's written to seven churches, seven churches that are facing spiritual attack. Christian merchants who are losing their contracts because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Christian leaders who are being arrested. And people like Timothy that we read about last week has either already been killed or is just about to be killed in a street fight in the city of Ephesus. This is a message which is, which is written to churches that are seeking to be faithful in a hostile environment. It's written to what the NIV describes as slaves but, or servants, but these are actually bond servants in the Greek language, which means people who have intentionally sold themselves into slavery. These are voluntary servants. These are intentional slaves. These are people who have fought, who have made a decision to follow Christ. These are believers, people who have committed to allegiance to Jesus and are facing the consequences of being a follower of Jesus. Did you know there are consequences? There is blessing and there is consequence. And these people were facing the challenges of that. It was written to people who were dissident disciples, people who were trying to work out what it meant to live faithfully between the world that they bumped into day by day and the kingdom of God. People who were living on the edge, as we're called to live, between heaven and earth. People who were working out what does it mean to live in an, in an empire that is just simply drunk on money, sex, and violence. How do you live? What vision do you need in that kind of environment? So what John brings is a living word, not a pep talk, not a means just of cheering people up to get them going. It is a revelation to lift eyes up through threat, anxiety, and fear, and to see the true reality. In a word, it's a call to hope over fear. 
And that kind of hope is not wishful thinking. True hope has to be tethered to reality, to truth. And so this is a message throughout this book that calls us to determine what the true reality really is. And so just as we get into the book, I want just to point in that direction. John saw, John heard, John spoke, but also John saw him. And now we're in verse 12. John said, I saw him. I turned, he said, when he heard the voice, and I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. What on earth is going on? What is he seeing? Well, the first thing that John sees is these seven lampstands that are blazing. These are the churches to which the letter is addressed. I didn't find that out by some massive revelation or reading an, a strange book. If you read verse 20, it tells you that. The answer is there. The mystery is that, and the seven golden lampstands is the seven stars of the angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's the first simple interpretation. And in chapters two and three, as Brody's going to show us in a couple of weeks' time, these churches are under stress, they're under pressure. Their fire on the lampstand is flickering and failing. For some of these churches, their love for Christ is diminished. For some of them, their faith has been corroded by slander and by the aggressive, violent words of their enemies. Some of them have been shaken by false teaching. Others have faced spiritual and psycho psychological abuse. Some have experienced sexual failure that has infected their fellowship. These are churches you probably wouldn't want to be part of because they're not as good as you, are they? Or me? It's fascinating, isn't it, that when you look at the church, it's not hard to find the mess. There's plenty to be disillusioned about in Christ's church. Undoubtedly, you have met people in life who said, oh, a church is so judgmental. People who are judgmental about the church being judgmental. They don't see it. No doubt you met people who regard the church as not living up to their standards of holiness or care. But here's the point. Jesus is amidst the mess. That's where you find him in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He has not abandoned his people. He's not got disillusioned with his people, even though he can see the mess better than you or I. He's not given up because he sees his people under stress or pressure and failing, because he knows the whole story. Jesus is amidst the mess. And look at the Jesus who is amidst the mess. 
David, I think you might need to move one or two of these slides on just a little bit, if you can. The one who is in the midst of the mess is one that, who is described as like a son of man. That is uh, in verse 12. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, the one that John is perceiving in the Spirit is, is not a bloke that was walking around who looked like a guy he knew. This is a, an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man comes resplendent in glory and power to take authority over all the nations and all of history. The one that John sees walking through the churches is someone who is risen, divine, eternal, who carries inexpressible splendor and authority and who's taking rule over all the people, nations, and languages. He sees the risen Jesus at the heart of the church. And the risen Jesus he sees walking amongst these failing churches is the one in whose hand is history itself. The one in whose hands is his plan of salvation. He takes central focus. Remember this, the risen Christ is in the thick of it. He has not abandoned his people. He's not apathetic. He's standing right here in the midst of the mess. And if you're in the midst of the mess, guess where Jesus is with you. And so when we get into two and three, we'll see that Jesus already says, I know, I know your deeds. I know what you've done well. I know where you've gone wrong. I know where you're at. But he's still there. He is there as a son of man. And he's there as a priest. So not only is he the son of man in resplendent glory, but he is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is the description of a priest, a high priest. And in fact, it's a high priest who has achieved all that he needs to achieve because his belt, his sashes, round his chest. If he was about to work, it would be round his waist. But this is someone who has completed and finished all that he has been required to do. Priests were seen to be the vehicles by which people connected with God. In fact, the word priest, um, if you are a Latin scholar, you'll know this, but you've probably heard the word pontifex which just simply means a bridge builder. A priest is a bridge builder between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is the one that connects heaven and earth. He is the one who enables us to have relationship with the Father. He has achieved all that is required for us to have relationship with the Father. He has built the bridge. The job is done. We can encounter him as he walks amongst the lampstands. He's a glorious king. We go on to see that there are, and his head and his hair are white, like wool is white as snow, and his eyes like blazing fire. Here is a kingly authority, one who has triumphed and whose tribe will be seen. His eyes are flaming fire. Fire is a description of purification. He's got holy power. He's not only rescued us, but he is transforming us. He has the ability to connect us to God, but he's the ability, true to transform us completely. And his feet are as burnished bronze. This is another um, 
allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where the kingdoms are seen to have feet that are fragile, mixed with clay and iron. Fragile compound. But his feet are planted in solid foundations. His kingdom will not fail. He isn't standing on uh, fragile achievements or a crumbling base. But the empire of God is bronze, tested, purified, strengthened by fire, unfailing, eternal, as feet are burnished bronze. John saw the Son of Man walk amongst the golden lampstands. And when he saw that, we read, this is verse 17. I feel like we've just got through just two or three of the headings of these descriptions. Please read just to absorb all that John saw. Verse 17, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, the authentic response to the true ruler of the universe is worship. I lay down. I cast my cries before him. I give him worth, worship, value. I make him the preeminent one in my life. John falls at his feet as though dead. It's as if he gives everything in worship. And I just want to ask you today that same question. Are you worshipping the Lord with all you've been given? I don't mean simply, are you shouting loud when we sing? I mean, have you worshipped the Lord? Have you given him worth and value in every part of your life? Have you offered the whole of your life to him? I think for many of us, we, we do that specifically in parts because there are times when we seek to offer a specific part of our lives that God puts his finger upon and I just want to ask you today, what are you offering to the Lord? This would normally be our vision uh, offering day when we consider giving financial gifts. But we felt over the summer that we wanted to express that our giving and the offering of our lives is our whole lives. If you want to give finance, well, not want. The Lord commands that we give our finances, whether to this church, if this is your family church, or wherever you are based. Give of what you have. Give more. Churches are really challenged in these days uh, across the board. So give what you can and then give a bit more until it hurts. But we give of more than our finances. What crown are you offering? What crown are you contributing to this community of God's people? What gift, time, or talent, what spiritual resource are you offering? You see, when we worship, 
we see God more clearly. And if we worship with all that we had, it means that when we choose to offer our time to clean a toilet, we'll see Jesus more. That when we choose to offer our time to him to support someone else as an act of worship, we will see something more of the Lord. When we give what we've been given, heaven breaks open. And I want to encourage you that we give of ourselves, that we make a contribution. And you might want just to think uh, today and in the days to come of what that contribution might be to the kingdom of God might be that it's something that you do give specifically to this community, or you might give in another Christian community, or you might give in service in the world around about. But we need to step out as we offer ourselves in an act of worship. The fear that we often have as we do that is that we'll be the losers, that if we step out and make ourselves vulnerable we'll lose something of ourselves or something that we own. There's an anxiety that can often just paralyze us from the freedom of giving of ourselves. I guess behind all of that is the worry that we lose ourselves. Death is the great fear that we all have, that we lose who we are. And so John, as he begins this revelation, as he is lying face down as though dead. He hears a hand upon him as he has given all, everything that he has so that there's nothing left. His hand says, do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever, forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What are you afraid of? What is the greatest fear that you face in life? I imagine behind the greatest fears we have is the fear of losing everything, the fear of even losing our lives itself. But here John says, as he offers all that he has in worship, that even when he has given himself unto death, as it were, he needn't be afraid because he's giving himself to Christ, to Jesus, the one who has walked into the very jaws of death itself and taken captivity captive. The one who has in himself destroyed all the powers that seek to extinguish life, to destroy us and to eliminate the goods. Jesus entered the dark prison of death and he took captivity captive. This is the greatest prison burst of all time because Jesus not only defeats death, but he comes out with the keys of death in his hand. And he says, I've got the keys. This can no longer imprison you in fear. This can no longer inhibit your witness or your worship because the keys to the greatest fear are in the hands of our greatest victor and savior. Do not fear, says Jesus, in a hostile world. Look up and see that God is working his purposes out. And even as you worry and concern yourselves over the things that come against us, do not fear. Jesus has the keys. Amen. It's going to take a moment to, to pray before we respond around the table. 
But just as we have come into this um, series, like one of the things that's just really been impressed upon me is the need for us to see things differently, for our, our spiritual sensitivity to be ramped right up. Because there are so many things that affect our spiritual vision in this world and in these days. So I'm going to pray for us, and um, it might be quite specific for some of us that we need to respond. We'll come back to that, but let me just pray for us right now. Lord, we pray that by the power of your word and by the presence of your spirit, spiritual eyes in this room would be opened today. Lord, we speak against those activities of the enemy that have dulled our sight, where we have seen just simply that which is on the horizon of our own lives, and we've been threatened and fearful and uh, reactive to, to what we have seen. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to spiritual reality, to the truth that you're on the throne, that you hold the keys even to death itself that you are exalted and that you are walking amongst us, us as the risen King and, and mighty Savior. Lord, would you open our eyes. Lord, I pray that for some of us, we'd be surprised by fresh encounters with you. Lord, help us to take those intentional steps to find our place in the Spirit with you on the Lord's day and on other days that our eyes might be opened. And I pray that our ears would be cleaned and cleared, that we might hear your voice in the midst of so many voices. Lord, your voice is like many rushing waters, but Lord, we can uh, just deafen our ears and our responsiveness. So Lord, would you just open our ears so that we might build from the inside out on the truth of what you say. So Holy Spirit, just come and work your work on us today for your glory, for you are high and lifted up and we bow down, we lay our crowns and we offer our worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Calling a City to Life talk. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again later in the week for the chat. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.